It was uh, not long after midnight on April the 26th, 1986, that two electrical engineers in a nuclear control room were making some unauthorized tests on a nuclear turbine engine. Like two little boys uh, trying to see how long a, a top would spin, these foolish engineers were trying to determine how long the turbine engine would freewheel or continue generating power after they cut off the power to the engine itself. In order to accomplish their test, the engineers had to manually override some six separate computer alarms. One by one, an alarm would go off that would tell them to stop or, or danger. And with each successive alarm, these engineers would turn off the alarm and continue pressing forward with their experiment. As they tested the limits of the powerful machine they were entrusted to, one final test ended in disaster. On the last test, the engineers were incapable of restoring power fast enough to the freewheeling turbine engine. This caused a chain reaction that ended in the explosion of Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near the town of Pripyat, Ukraine. The two engineers, along with two other workers, were killed instantly. Forty hours later, some 40 hours later, uh, the, the Soviets had determined that they needed to evacuate the surrounding cities. But by that time, it was, it was a little bit too late. Out of the 350,000 or so evacuees, uh, some 50 died within day, a day or within months of the nuclear explosion. And it's estimated that an additional 4,000 died prematurely. This is, these are low estimates. 4,000 died prematurely due to increased cancer risk. All because these engineers, these two engineers, wanted to see how long their top would spin. All because they ignored six successive alarms that rather than stopping what they were doing, they instead turned the alarm off and kept pressing forward. These two engineers just brushed the warnings aside and continued on their present course of action that led to their own death and the death of thousands of others. Now today, in our study in the Word, we meet the people of Israel who are paying little attention to warning after warning after warning from the prophets, most notably now in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. And this wasn't the first time that they had failed to pay heed to these repeated warnings. You see, in the book of Ezekiel, we encounter the Jews in exile. It's about the time 593 B.C. And Ezekiel himself, along with the contingency of Jews, have been exiled to Babylon. And some Jews have been left, but their day is coming. And the Jews that have been exiled to Babylon, they've had forewarning. Ezekiel has certainly had forewarning, as has his people. Isaiah had warned him about it some 200 years prior, 150 years prior. Jeremiah had warned them about this, this coming invasion 50 years prior, and many of the minor prophets. 
So it wasn't that they hadn't had warnings. The people of the Jews, they knew what was coming down the pike. They just chose to turn off alarm after alarm after alarm and continue on their present course of action. Time and time again, Israel shut off the alarms of the prophets and instead listened to only what their itching ears wanted to hear. By the time Ezekiel prophesied to the Jews, many of them, including Ezekiel himself, had been taken to Babylon and not because they hadn't been warned about it, but because they had stubbornly refused to listen to those warnings. Despite their capture, the people refused to believe. They refused to believe that Jerusalem would be destroyed or that their people would be utterly taken from the land of Canaan. We pick up the story in Ezekiel chapter 12. Will you stand with me as we read Ezekiel 12, beginning in verse 21? Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 21. Pay attention to the tone of the people of Israel who are already in Babylon. Ezekiel 12, verse 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man... What is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails? Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision for no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is, Many days from now, and he prophesies of times far, far off. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. You may be seated. Look again at 21 and 22. Ezekiel writes, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails? Uh, Much like uh, uh, the Lord holds, uh, holds a leader accountable for the people, here the Lord is asking Ezekiel to speak to him to converse with him about this this proverb that the people are 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 spilling throughout the land this piece of wisdom or this piece of knowledge that a rumor of sorts that is going throughout the land in Babylon no less this is a rumor a, a proverbial saying that is going throughout the Jews in captivity in Babylon they're, they're whispering these kinds of things. And the Lord is curious. He says, what gave you the impression? What gave you the impression, Israel, that Jerusalem would not be overthrown? Which prophecy of Isaiah 
or Jeremiah or a host of others led you to believe that the land of Israel would not be judged, would not be banished. If it is true that the days are prolonged and every vision fails, then how is it that Nebuchadnezzar surrounds Jerusalem right now? How is it that tens of thousands of you have already been taken captive to Babylon? Israel was refusing to listen to God's promise of coming judgment. They were refusing to listen, despite the fact that they were already being taken in chains. The rumor had it in the, in the, in, within Babylon, within the Jewish community there, that, well, you know, these days, they're just a prolonged... Uh, we're just kind of out of sorts here. We're just out of the land for a little bit. The visions, the prophecies, no, no, they're going to fail. They're not going to come to fruition. We're just, going to, we're just taking a little bit of a detour over here in Babylon for a few years. We'll come back. We'll come back. All that prophecy of judgment, of coming destruction... Surely, surely the Lord is not going to bring that upon us. The Lord was asking Ezekiel to explain to him the tone of the people, the perception of the people. What was the sayings among the people? What was their worldview, their ideology? And it begs the question, uh, how often do we, in the face of obvious and repeated warnings from the Spirit of God, or from the Word of God, how often do we stubbornly persist in our present course of action? Are you, do you seek God's will, or do you seek your own will? Do, is your idea of finding God's will a game of, of latching on to any piece of worldly wisdom that validates what you are doing? Are you ignoring Scripture and the Spirit's conviction while clinging tightly to anything or anyone that is approving of your present course of action? How are you determining what God's will is for you? What God's plan is for you? You see, so often we can, we can quickly justify our present course of action. We can ignore the Word and we can ignore the, the, the Spirit's conviction upon our hearts that maybe where we're headed or what we're doing is, is not what God would have us do. And yet instead, instead of listening to the Word and to the Spirit of God, we latch tightly onto anyone or anything, any piece of worldly wisdom, any book, any speaker, who tells us things that validates what we're doing. Who gives us the kind of incentive to keep going down a path without comparing that path with the Word or with the Spirit's conviction. Are we seeking God's will or are we seeking our own will? The Lord says, Son of man, Ezekiel, what is this proverb that the people of Israel have about their land? Why are they saying the days are prolonged and every vision fails? Do they really believe that, that, that what is happening right now, do they really honestly believe that the, that the judgment prophesied about them is not coming to fruition? Are they really that dull? Ezekiel was dealing with a group of people with, uh, with very mixed reactions to their present captivity in Babylon. Um, there, was a, there was a wide spectrum, I'm, I would guess, of, of people that left Jerusalem in chains to Babylon. I mean, think, think of the, the variety of, of uh, thoughts running through their head, you know. 
that, and, and the variety of thoughts that led to this kind of proverb becoming commonplace. So they're leaving Jerusalem in chains, and yet they're arriving in Babylon, and the people are be, of the persuasion that, oh, well, this is, just a, this is just a temporary detour. This is surely not any of that judgment talk that Isaiah and Jeremiah were speaking of. What would cause that to happen? What would, there's some sort of erosion there from being led in chains to Babylon to then thinking that this has nothing to do with God's judgment. I see three things here. I, I, see, I see delusion. I see stubbornness. And I see cynicism. Ezekiel was dealing with a people that were eroding in these kinds of ways. Delusional. They could not bring themselves to believe that God was judging them. They couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to even face the possibility that this might be God's judgment upon them. That's delusional. That led to stubbornness. They, in time, simply refused to acknowledge that the warning of the prophets pertains to their chains in Babylon. They, they stubbornly refused to acknowledge that, that, that the Scriptures of Isaiah and Jeremiah pertained to their present lot in life in the late 6th century B.C. And that led to cynicism. They outright dismissed the prophets' warnings as false. They outright dismissed the prophets' warnings as false. Thus, we see the words in verse 22, every vision fails. They went from delusion, avoided facing the truth, to stubbornness, refusing to acknowledge the truth, to cynicism, in which they outright dismissed the truth. Peter, I think, uh, certainly saw the progression that we see here in Ezekiel. I want you to turn toward the end of your Bible. Or turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hold your spot in Ezekiel. We'll come back. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter certainly saw uh, the, the progression toward cynicism in his day. And he also foresaw that it would come in the last day. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Uh, see where it says scoffers. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, we've looked at this text before, and this is, a, this is a telling, telling text of not only what is in our day, but also what is to come in our day. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've personally... Uh, I've personally been mocked for believing in the second coming of Jesus Christ. I've had uh, a, a few different conversations. I had one uh, class at a uh, junior college I was taking, my Philosophy 101 class, in which the professor openly mocked me for believing in the return of Jesus Christ. Scoffers, moving from delusion to stubbornness to cynicism, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, saying, Where, where's, where's Jesus? You said He's coming. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. 
Where's the change? Some parallels with with Ezekiel's community, isn't there? They were looking at the, the prophets. They were looking at Ezekiel's words and saying, you know, okay, come on, this, that can't be the warnings. This can't be the warnings that, you, that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke of. This can't be the judgment. Surely that's not it. Those visions fail. This is just a, a detour in life. They fail to recognize these scoffers, these mockers, the cynics. They fail to recognize that Sometimes the Lord, sometimes there is a little bit of a delay in time before the Lord carries out His promise. Um, but He always carries out His promise. Look at verse 8 in Second Peter 3. It says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll, get, we'll look a little bit more into what's the reason for the delay here. But the Lord's going to make good on His promise. He's going to make good on the prophecies that we read here. We can have confidence there. Turn back to Ezekiel 12. Ezekiel 12. Let's look at verse 23 now. Ezekiel 12, verse 23 to 25. Tell them, therefore, this is the Lord speaking. Thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. You know, the day is coming when the Lord will silence His critics. In the case of Ezekiel, God declared that the prolonged stay of judgment was over. And sure enough, not long after these words we read in Ezekiel 12, in 586 B.C., Israel no longer had merely a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, but they saw it with their own eyes. Literally, Ezekiel began his ministry in 539 B.C. And by the time we read these words in chapter 12, it was likely months, maybe years, but likely months before the destruction of Jerusalem was complete in 586 B.C. So while the people said, oh, the visions, they fail. There's been so much delay. Isaiah spoke of that 150 years ago. Come on, Ezekiel. We know better than that. While they spoke of the visions failing and the prophecies failing, God had in mind to pull away the stay on judgment. He pulled aside that delay. And in their day, before their very eyes, they saw what they thought would never happen. A day is coming when the Lord will silence His critics. We see it in the day of Ezekiel. And we also see it in the case of what we saw with Peter. You know, the day is coming when the Lord will shut the mouths of those who mock His imminent return. But lest we think that 
that we're so separate from those that Peter describes in 2 Peter 3, the road to sarcasm and cynicism is paved with stubbornness and delusion. Now, sure, we've been taught that Jesus is coming back. I know we've been taught that. We've all been taught that, those of us who are believers. We've been instructed that it, it is, a, it is a, a theological truth. It is a biblical fact that Jesus is coming back. But the question is, is that just a truth of knowledge in our mind? Or does it have a transformative effect on our lives? Because the New Testament is quite clear that the Spirit of God will amply bless the one who has continual expectation of the imminence of Jesus' second coming. Of the imminence of it. That it can happen at any moment. The New Testament is clear that with that belief, not just a head belief, but a heart belief, that Jesus could come even now. With that conviction comes transformation. And it comes in a few different ways. The first element of transformation that you see with a heart that is expecting God to return at any moment, the first thing you can count on is comfort. Comfort. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A familiar passage. We know it well. But it's one that, that does not grow old. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, notice verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. You know, the Thessalonians, not unlike any other church in the in the uh, ancient Mediterranean world, they were struggling and battling persecution. They were battling uh, uh, misinformation about what was happening in the future. Some had said that Jesus already came. Others were concerned. Paul says, look, let me, let me make it very clear to you. Jesus is coming again. And when He comes, He will take you with Him. You've not missed it. A lot of the Thessalonians thought they had missed the rapture of, of sorts. He says, you've not missed it. It is yet future. And you can rest assured that He is coming for you. That gives you comfort. Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. And He goes on to talk about the mansion that He's creating for you. And so, the first thing that a heart conviction of, an, of the imminent return of Jesus Christ gives to us is comfort. It gives to us comfort. It helps us to be put at ease. And in a world that we're in like this one, we need comfort. I think, that, uh, I think we all need to be comforted. We, we'd be foolish to think otherwise. To think that, that we're strong enough on our own. No, we, we go through dark times. We go through struggles. We go through turmoil. And we need to be comforted. And one of the ways that you can be comforted is by waking up each day and expecting that the Lord could return at any moment. It will bring you comfort from the moment you wake up. The second thing, a conviction that the Lord will return at any moment will bring you, is growth in holiness. Growth in holiness. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Turn to 1 John. Again, toward the, 
end of the scriptures here. First John chapter three. A firm conviction that the Lord could return at any minute spurs on holiness. Look what John says in first John three, verse two. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, that is Christ, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That is to say that anyone who knows, anyone who has the thought, and not just the thought, the conviction that Christ could show up at any moment in time, their, their lives going to change. Their conduct is going to change. What they're saying is going to change. What they're doing is going to change. How they're conducting themselves in life, in business, in recreation, all of it is going to change. When you wake up each day thinking the Lord might come back today. So everything that I do today must be lived in that light. A firm expectation on the return of the Lord brings growth and holiness. Peter also speaks of this. Turn back just a few pages. Second Peter chapter three again. Look at verse ten. Second Peter three, beginning in verse ten. Peter writes, But the day of the Lord it'll come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, without spot and blameless. Here again, Peter confirms what John has just said. When you have an expectation that the Lord is returning, your conduct changes. You grow in holiness. I know, uh, I know certainly we are, you know, we're people of the flesh. We, we struggle with holiness. We struggle with, with lust. We struggle with gossip. We struggle with rage. We struggle with all sorts of things. And we're always trying to, you know, we're always beating ourselves up when we fall into that same sin again and again and again. I suggest to you that one way, one way, that you can begin to walk out of the habitual tendency to sin and to fall aside is to wake up each morning with the conviction that Jesus may come today. Set your alarm that it might go off during the day so that when it beeps, it reminds you Jesus may come today. Do whatever it takes. Put it before your eyes. Put it on the table that you eat at. Put something that would remind you that Jesus could come back right now. Right here. It will spur you on to holiness. Put these reminders wherever they need to be. In your home. In your car. The first thing an imminent 
a conviction that Christ will return at any moment will bring you is comfort. The second thing it will bring you is growth and holiness. And the third thing it will bring you is sympathy for and evangelism toward the lost. Sympathy for and evangelism toward the lost. Again in 2 Peter, look at verse 9 of chapter 3. We've already read it once. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Sympathy for and evangelism toward the lost. That's what an imminent expectation of the Lord's return will bring to us. You see, here we find the reason for the delay. The delay in our Lord's return. The delay in the the return of Jesus, which the scoffers of 2 Peter mock and show disdain for, was really an expression of God's long-suffering toward all mankind. The very thing that the scoffers mock is a period of time in which our Lord is hoping for their salvation. Let me say that again. The very period of time which people mock, the very period of time which some mock us for waiting for the return of Christ is the same period of time in which our Lord is hoping, is wishing for the mocker's salvation. And so when the philosophy professor was openly mocking his uh, 18-year-old counterpart in Philosophy 101, while he was casting that, that venom my way and, and mocking me and, and being sarcastic and cynical, the Lord was hoping for His salvation. And that's what we're to do. The expectation that the Lord might come today ought to give us sympathy for and a greater spirit of evangelism toward the lost. When we're focused on the truth that Jesus could return, we grow in sympathy for the lost. We grow in our desire to reach them. And we know that any delay, any delay in Jesus' return is actually a gift. It's a gift to them. Given that more men more women and more children might come to believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So we know that a delay is a gift. But we also know that a delay will soon be over, as was the case in Ezekiel's day. Look one more time at Ezekiel 12, verse 23. Ezekiel 12, verse 23. We end with these last three, four, three verses. Excuse me. Yeah, verse, uh, verse 26, excuse me. Ezekiel 12, verse 26. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees, that Ezekiel sees, is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far, far off. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done says the Lord. The delay, the delay that the Jews of Ezekiel's day mistook as just a detour was actually an expression of God's grace toward them 
But they didn't even recognize it. Instead, they were delusional. They were stubborn. And that ended in cynicism toward the Lord's prophet. They were to know assuredly, the Lord said, that that delay was coming to an end. That delay is coming to an end. And sure enough, months, not maybe a year later, those same people experienced the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of their homeland. And they knew assuredly the truth of the prophet's words then. In our day, you know, we, 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 uh, we look at the delay. We look at 2,000 years. 2,000 years. We think, man, you know, Neil, come on. I know you're talking to Jesus' soon return and the, the doctrine of the imminency of the return of Christ, but come on, it's been 2,000 years here. 2,000 years. Surely, surely that this isn't the time. Surely this isn't the moment. I mean, the disciples thought Jesus was coming in their day. That didn't happen. There were many other time periods where the structure of the world was such that people thought that Jesus could return at any moment and it didn't happen. So why should we believe it to be true now? Well, truth is, I don't know. <laughs> and neither do you. But our lack of knowledge of when the end is coming does not preclude us from expecting His soon return. And in fact, in this day and age, you know, I look around me today and I see, I see things today that no generation has seen. I see things today like the return of Israel to her homeland. Are you kidding? You are living in this, in this day and age. It's only been some 70 years not even 70, 65, uh, 75 years since Israel has returned to her homeland. 65 years. There are earthquakes and floods of greater intensity. There are wars and rumors of wars. There is economic turmoil and unrest. There is the ever-increasing rhetoric of global governance by leaders in high places. Is it not at all outrageous for us to suppose that the end is near? Of course not. Of course not. The world is, is arranging itself for the end. And we are to be expectant. Regardless if there's been 2,000 years delay, remember what that delay is. That delay is not an indicator that the Lord isn't coming back. That delay is an indicator that God is showing grace upon all mankind. So we have a choice. Live life expecting the end is near and grow in comfort, holiness, and sympathy for the lost. Or we can ignore our Lord's return, vainly thinking that surely such things won't come in our day. Even at the end, the Israelites were still choosing to believe that, that, that it was far, far off. Verse 27, Ezekiel Look, the house of Israel is saying the vision that Ezekiel sees is many days from now and he prophesies of times far, far off. The Israelites of Ezekiel's day doubted the prophecy of coming judgment. Their hearts were dulled by their doubt and they paid a dear price. But the delay will soon be over. Therefore, the Lord said to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of My words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done says the Lord. In Ezekiel 12.28, the spirit of Ezekiel 12.28, 
There is a generation of Christians who are going to see that that day. There's a generation of Christians who are going to see that day in the return of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns, may we be found not like those of Ezekiel's generation. May we not turn off. May we not ignore the many alarms ringing around us in the world and plainly seen in the world today. But may we expect Jesus daily. May, he, may we expect that He could come even now. And this glorious knowledge is not only comforting, but it motivates us in holiness and in our love for the lost. We need to learn the spiritual discipline of expectancy. Expectancy. It will draw us nearer to the heart of God. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, this time in Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for uh, a, a message, a prophecy in a book some 2,500 years ago that is still so very, very relevant today. Lord, we don't want to be like the people of Ezekiel's day. We don't want to be casting aside Your promise of Your Son's return. We don't want to be casting aside, Lord. We don't want to be thinking that, well, the delay has been so long, surely it won't be in our generation. Father, help us to fight that. Help us to expect Your Son's return. You've told us, Lord, that He could come at any moment. I pray, Father, that both myself and our church could be a people who is expecting Jesus at any moment. And that it would cause us to comfort one another with these words. That it would cause us to grow in holiness. And that it would open our hearts toward the lost, knowing that they have but moments, Lord, before You are coming back. Father, help us to expect You. Thank You for the delay. We thank You for the gift of the delay. But Lord, in the end, we want to see Your soon return. So we say, Father, according to Your Word, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we will wait for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.